All right, uh, we are in Revelation chapter 2. That is where we will be this evening, so open up your Bible to there. We began the passage that we're going to be in two weeks ago, and we had last week off, so we're coming back to it tonight. But the passage that we have before us is this address to the church in Thyatira. It's a local congregation that is southeast of Pergamum. And the Lord Jesus has something to say to this congregation, and he has something to say to us, and to every church in this present age, the end times, the the last days, the time in between Jesus' ascension to heaven and his coming again, his second coming. Uh, He has things to say to us in that time period through this passage. So let's read the passage, and then we'll pray, asking God's blessing. So the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 18 in chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you, and as we come to your word this evening, we ask for wisdom. We ask for discernment. We ask that you would help us to be meek, that the things which you teach in your word, which you desire for us to know, would be the things that I communicate, and that you would help us, all then, myself included, to obey them and to seek to glorify your name through right, a right understanding. God, guard us from all evil and help us to grow in love for you and for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing we should do, I think, is a bit of recap. Uh, we don't need to go over all 20 or all 12 of these verses tonight. And two weeks ago, we got up to verse 20 and we dealt with some of the things in that verse, but we're going to need to revisit that verse again so we can understand the full picture of what's being said there. But before that, uh, with what we have seen and what we have, what we need to be reminded of is one, that this address carries with it an emphasis on the authority of Christ. Maybe you remember that, but of course, as Christians, we already affirm and assume the authority of Christ Jesus. He is God. He's equal to the Father, of the same essence or subsistence of the Father. Ontologically speaking, in other words, thinking of Jesus' being or his nature, he is divine. He is a true, he is true God, the, you know, the second person of the Trinity, equally God with the same authority and attributes as the Father and the Spirit. And even more, he's not just God, but he took to himself a human nature, so that he is also true man. And we would also affirm then that he has this unique authority as the only mediator between God and man, because in the covenant of redemption, he's our prophet, priest, and king. No one else is that, just Jesus is, the king of all humanity from the line of David. And he ascended to reign 
with the promise that he was going to come again. And he was given authority on earth and in heaven as the God-man. He's the ruler of the kings on earth, according to Revelation 1.5. And his authority here for this congregation is highlighted back in verse 18. This is the Son of God. This is the only time that we hear that phrase in, in the apocalypse. And we're told that he has eyes of flame, like, like fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. So in his ruling, he sees all, he knows all, and he reigns with strength and purity. He's here with us even. You know, we see his feet. And we're meant to think of this unique authority of Christ in light of the church's issues. They're not all bad, mind you. Uh, Jesus praises them for their, for their works, specifically their acts of love and faith and patient endurance. And they even bore the good signs of spiritual growth. But, and this is where they especially need to take note of Christ's authority, they have some issues concerning doctrine that is impacting their life. They lack doctrinal care. They lack doctrinal precision. And that they would greatly benefit from creeds and confessions. We spent time a couple weeks ago talking about those things, how blessed we are to have them, and how the individual Christian, as well as the church body as a whole, has a responsibility really to use them and consider them. And the, and the peril and the danger that comes from not using those things, from ignoring them. So every local congregation should be guarded by the elders and of the church, and their ability to do so is helped significantly by having formed and accepted documents, you know, by having confessions that explain what the faith is. But this church in Thyatira was weak in that regard. They let someone named or identified as Jezebel influence them and teach them, and she, or perhaps even he, uh, was leading them into immorality and idolatry. Whether or not this person's name was Jezebel, actually, or if this person was like a Jezebel, meaning there's like an allusion to Ahab's wife here, Jezebel from Israel's history, and the kind of person she was, we're not really sure. It might have been the name of the actual person here, we don't know. But certainly though, we are made to think of the Jezebel from history past. This woman who led the nation of Israel to commit spiritual adultery with Baal. Because it's a sin of a similar type that is happening here. And so the church now, instead of the nation of Israel, like back in First Kings, is being led into immorality and idolatry by this Jezebel. And so these are serious issues here in Thyatira. Serious issues that are leading to serious consequence. Serious consequences if they don't repent. So we'll pick this back up at verse 20. Let's read that verse. Verse 20 says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So it's clear that verse 20 is where we have the turn in the text. It's at this point where the critique starts. It's at this point where we see that the Lord Jesus has something against them. Jesus, the one with eyes like a flame of fire, he sees everything. And of course, then he sees how they have been tolerating this woman named, or this woman Jezebel. And he has this against him. Again, woman or man, we're not exactly sure. But it says woman. So we'll, we'll go with that. And Jezebel certainly was a woman in First Kings. So there are two things in the text I want us to see here before we move on. We'll spend most of our time considering these tonight. Number one, we need to understand what the sin is here. And then secondly, we need to understand what the issues are related to uh, tolerating this Jezebel. And at the same time as those two things, what does it mean for Jesus to have something against them or against us in, in similar fashion? And so let's take that first point now. What exactly is this sin taking place? In one sense, it seems kind of clear, right? I mean, we read in verse 20 that Jezebel is teaching in such a way 
and seducing, which essentially just means she's deceiving. Uh, she's causing them with her teachings to be deceived into practicing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Let's do with the latter one first. Eating food sacrificed to idols is a problem that the Corinthian church was admonished for. You might remember that dealt with in chapter 10 and especially in chapter 8, really 8 through 10 is when it kind of deals with that issue in a pulled back way. And it's a complex issue, issue because the Christian is one who knows that there is only one God. Every other being that people believe in that is a God, we know that, that it's not actually a God. There's only one true God. And all these idols that people claim to, and these other gods that people claim to worship, we know that they don't actually exist. They're not Yahweh. It's either some sort of a demon or a lie they have made up in their mind. Uh, an idol, as the text says. They're not, they're not real. They don't have the true power in, they don't have any true power in and of themselves to do anything. Even demons are God's demons. They must have you know, permission to do anything. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, Keep your finger in Revelation and flip back to 1 Corinthians 8, just a few pages to the left. 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, Paul says this. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So eating food sacrificed to idols isn't really an issue as long as the one who is eating isn't offering false worship. That was the problem in Corinth. You might remember that some people were eating offerings or meat offered to idols, and it was no big deal for them, but others saw them doing it, and they were offended because they couldn't separate the act of worshiping that idol from the, the meat that was offered before them. And you know, you might at a restaurant today, or even you might go to a, a market and buy meat or a grocery store that has been prayed over by someone. And even if you go into like a restaurant where it's, you know, the people are praying over the food there behind in the kitchen where you don't know anything about it, none of that is going to harm you spiritually or cause you to be in sin because they're, you know, we're free in Christ and these things aren't real unless you're engaging in false worship and committing idolatry when you eat unless you are believing that those things are real and that there is something actually happening in, in those prayers. And since Jesus has this eating against them, it would seem clear that those in Thyatira are, who are being seduced by this Jezebel are in fact guilty of idolatry. They are guilty of breaking the first commandment then. When God says there in Exodus 20 that we shall have no other gods before him, what is he actually forbidding? As the Catechism says, uh, he's forbidding Excuse me, the denying of, and it quotes um, Psalm 14.1 there. Psalm 14.1 is that verse that you know describes an atheist, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. An atheist position is a foolish position. So um, forbid for when, when God says that you shall have no other gods before him, he's forbidding the denying of or, or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God, and giving that worship and glory to another, which is due unto him alone. Hopefully you guys talked about idolatry in the small group time before this. And you can understand, hopefully, why idolatry is bad. We're stealing from God, essentially, giving what is owed to God by way of him being our creator and giving it to something else. And even worse then, for the Christian, God is more than just your creator. He's your redeemer. He's your, he's your savior. He's, he's Lord of everyone in the whole world, but he's not Savior of everyone in the whole world. He is that of the Christian, though. 
And so it's even worse then when one who is part of the church falls into idolatry. When one who is professing to trust Christ is guilty of idolatry, you're not only failing to obey the first commandment, but you're failing to do what the first commandment should compel you to do. And that is ultimately to tell others that it is God, that it is Yahweh, that it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who alone is worthy of worship. Everyone owes God worship. And Christians who know this and yet engage in idolatry are in sin, and they're failing to glorify God before the lost, and they're even in a way contributing to the lost person's delusions about there, you know, not being any God or, or God being, you know, someone that they don't know. And they're also contributing to their hardness of heart. And the very dangerous thing for us today is that we know, as Calvin said, that the human heart is an idle factory. And there are many ways in which we may entice someone to not have God first in their life. We should be aware of that and giving time to thinking and praying about what is first in our own lives. Are we letting anything take away from our pursuit of worshiping God? And if so, you know, repent, stop doing whatever it is, and restfully rely on the righteousness of Christ again. But there are so many things that can easily sneak up in our lives and become idols. And when we indulge these idols in front of others, we're not only sinning ourselves, but we're in a way helping others to see that... Uh, it's helping others to have their heart hardened, unfortunately, so that they too pursue these types of idols as well. And for this Corinthian church, uh, they would need to stop eating the food sacrificed idols in such a way that was leading them to be guilty of idolatry. But it's more complex than that because they're also guilty of sexual immorality, we read. Uh, the teaching of Jezebel led to sexual immorality and idolatry. Sexual immorality, we all know what that is, I, I think, hope, any sexual act outside of a biblical marriage, which God forbids. But it's not quite so clear that it's actually sexual immorality here that is plaguing the church. At least it's not simply that the teachings of this Jezebel character are simply causing them to like live like hedonists. Like It doesn't seem to be the case that Thyatira has just become some sexually deviant secular culture akin to what ours is. But probably there are some actual sexual immorality acts going on as well. What all of this seems to be, more likely what it is, is that it seems to be in reference to a spiritual adultery taking place. So G.K. Beale notes that the Greek word for immorality is used elsewhere in Revelation and to refer not so much as literal sexual immorality, but to engaging in illicit intercourse with gods who stand behind idols that are worshipped. So the Greek word porneia that's used here sounds like porn, that's you know where we get that word from, which is used uh, for immoral sexual acts, of course, is often used in this book, Revelation, with this metaphorical understanding of spiritual adultery. It's used outside of chapter 2 here 15 times. Of those 15 times, only twice seems to be actually referring to literal sexual immorality. The other 13 times, it's referring to spiritual adultery. Um, not actually, you know, physical things happening, but the worship of false gods. Uh, often in the Old Testament, God described his relationship to Israel as that of a husband and wife relationship. Same thing is carried over into the New Testament, right? There's Christ and the church is Christ's bride. <laughs> Somebody, uh, somebody's here. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I, I knew you knew that one. I did. Um, in the Old Testament, 
Israel's tendency to worship other gods, to commit idolatry, often led God to speak through the prophets about Israel in such a way that identified them as adulterers and whores even. So think of like the, the example of Hosea even. Hosea was a prophet whose life vividly portrayed this reality that the nation of Israel often was adulterous and acted like a, a whore, not trying to soften it up. That's just literally the language the Bible uses. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 3. If you see Ezekiel, just go a little bit farther because it's Lamentations and then Jeremiah. So Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 to 8. And really, we could have even started a little bit earlier, but this will be enough. Verse 6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? So she being Israel, the nation of Israel. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. It goes on like that. It continues as well. He's not you know, necessarily speaking about a spiritual adultery. They were in a covenant with God. Um, think of the covenant of marriage, right? And, and a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. A man and a woman pr- um, promise to be faithful to one another. Same thing within the Old Covenant. God was promising to be their God. They were going to be God's people, but they were not being faithful to God. They were being adulterous and whoring. That's the words that he uses. So Ezekiel 16, go to the next book, or two books over. It's Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, verse 26. And actually, you know, in the Bible that I have, sometimes they'll put like, chapter descriptions of the front of them the chapter description for 16 is the lord's faithless bride but look at verse 26 in chapter 16 you also he's talking to israel here you also played the whore with the egyptians your lustful neighbors multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger he's not just talking about them like having engaging in actual sexual acts with them but they probably did of course too but he's speaking about them worshiping egypt's gods Following, falling in line with the practices and the, and the culture of Egypt that they weren't supposed to take part in. Now, did worshiping false gods also often have with it true or actual sexual morality? It did. It often did. These false religions always appeal to the flesh in one way or another. They, they appeal to our desire to enjoy sin. And so... That is what we have happening, taking place here in Thyatira too. This Jezebel is teaching the church to commit idolatry. She or he is teaching them to worship gods alongside the one true God, teaching them that it's okay. Look down at verse 22. Go back to Revelation 2 if you're not there already. Look back. Look down at verse 22 in Revelation 2. The analogy continues. God will throw Jezebel into a sickbed, and not just into sickness, but onto a sickbed. He has, he, has, oh, he has a word for those who commit with her, uh, what with her? Uh, adultery. 
right? He has something else for them who are going to commit adultery with her. So not that this Jezebel is literally sleeping with the members in the congregation, but she's leading them into spiritual adultery, which again may entail, which probably does entail some actual sexual immorality too. Look what's said in verse 24 as well. This teaching of Jezebel is called here by John, the deep things of Satan. Or as be, um, it could be that Jezebel and her followers called these teachings the deep things of God, actually. That's what G.K. Beale thinks. Or it could be that they really called these teachings of hers the deep things of Satan. And so she was promoting some sort of antinomianism, some notion of encouraging people to embrace sin and saying that it was okay because you've been saved by grace. And remember from last time that Thyatira was a trading post and it was this hub for all these different trading guilds. And each guild has own specific deity associated with it. You know, the God of purple dye or the God of iron and so on and so on. And that would be a problem for the Christians who found their livelihoods in the guilds. How would they interact with these guilds? How would they still take part in commerce because there would be these feasts and these festivals in order to honor the so-called gods of these guilds. But now these people are Christians, and they know these guilds, gods, are fake. They're not real. At these festivals or feasts, there would be sometimes be like you know, sexually immoral acts taking place as a way to appease these gods, these false gods. And what is the Christian supposed to do? Could they be a part of the guild still, but just simply stop attending the feasts and the festivals associated with them? It would lend itself to financial strain, if so, maybe even persecution. It's a big part of the social life of the community. Or could they remain part of the guild and still participate in those things and God wouldn't care? Or must they leave the guild altogether? Uh, think of it like this. You know, you're a chef working at a Chinese food restaurant. You're not a Christian, but then every day the owner of the store has you engage in prayer to Buddha before the day begins. But then you become a Christian and you know that praying to Buddha is sinful and you he can't hear you anyway. It's just a little fat statue. But you know that God will see you, and you know that God will hear you doing this. So do you show up to work on time for the prayer and just don't really pay any attention because, you know, the boss doesn't know that about you, and obviously, you know, you're not praying to this thing anyways? Or do you just start coming to work late and miss that part and risk getting in trouble, risk getting fired? Or do you simply just quit and look for a new job? Well, for the saints in Thyatira, it's not that simple. Can you convert them? Yeah, maybe. I, that's the point. Yeah, but you can't convert them by partaking in the in the prayer of the thing, right? I mean, that's your job, anyways, right? So, not not giving into idolatry is again part of the Great Commission, right? Because when you do give into idolatry, then you're confusing others around you, thinking that they can be satisfied in things other than God, anyways. So. For the saints of Thyatira, it's not that simple. They can't just quit and find a new job really easily. Uh, their whole livelihoods, their whole family structures were based upon you know, the, the trade that they learned, the skills that they had. And so it would appear that this Jezebel person has come in to assuage their consciences and is teaching them that you can be a part of these guilds and God doesn't mind. You can perhaps even take part in some of the sinful activities, this, these worshiping other gods that is happening and God's going to be okay with it. And from doing so, you can actually learn more about the grace that God gives you in Christ. It's the deep things of God that, you know, they're teaching here. In fact, by partaking of these things, you're even a better Christian because now you're more fully acquainted with the world. This is like some sinister stuff. 
This Jezebel is calling good that which is evil, and others are doing the same thing and agreeing. And God actually says, no, you can't do that. Those are the deep things of Satan. Those are the deep those are not the deep things of God, and there is serious consequence for those who are engaging with um, this kind of behavior. Jesus has this against them. He's not pleased with them for engaging with and following this advice from this false prophet, this false teacher. They need more discernment. They need to be considering the words of God in Romans 6, where there the Apostle Paul says, you know, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And the answer is certainly not. Friends, if someone comes to us today and says, God doesn't care about this or that, and make no mistake, people do this type of thing all the time, you need to be on guard at that point. That's essentially what's happening here. This Jezebel say, look, God doesn't care about your engagement with these guilds and the things that they do. It's okay. He's not going to mind. Same type of thing happens today. In our day, people try to come across as enlightened and modern since you know most people think new is better and it is true with technology but it's not true with met with everything and so they'll say things that make it sound like they have superior understanding or superior knowledge now and they'll say that it's okay if we indulge in this or that this thing that the bible forbids or they'll say something like you should consider this view you know don't be so dogmatic be open to learning from other people and, and there is some truth to that but when these other people are teaching something that is clearly contrary to what God says in his word, it's not loving and wise and good-spirited to entertain them. So secondly, the other thing that he has against these people in the church in Thyatira is not just the sin that they're doing, but also that some people are tolerating it to happen. We mustn't tolerate those who would subvert the faith once and for all delivered to us through Jesus and the apostles. We aren't free to regulate the way that we worship God. God instructs us on how we should worship him and how, our, how we should live our lives as well. Now, Romans 12, 1 through 2 elaborates on that, right? We present our bodies, we present our lives to God as a spiritual sacrifice. And in that, you know, we are conformed to God. We're not to be conforming to the world. We're to be conforming to God. And even further, we must not tolerate those who do not want to do that and those who are teaching others to subvert the faith, faith as well. This takes wisdom. You want to first lovingly correct someone who's in error, giving them time to repent. It's best done in a church discipline context, see Matthew 18. But what we don't want to do is simply ignore it or tolerate it. We can't be perfect. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. We, we are to be a community, though, of people who are looking to the Lord, who are self-examining our our lives, who are considering, you know, am I putting this before God? Is this taking up time that I should be using to pursue the Lord? We should be thinking about those kinds of things. And then we should be living repentant lives, uh, repenting when we are aware of sin and remembering the gospel in that. And we, and we should be on a path of to greater and more clearer holiness. Uh, William Hendrickson said this, Thyatira was indeed a lampstand, a light bearer, but this does not constitute as an excuse for failure to exercise discipline with respect to members who make a compromise with the world. So their, their toleration of this Jezebel was actually making the whole church body less holy. They had to, they, they, if they were doing the right thing, they would get rid of this leave-in that was 
contaminating the whole lump. And so there's two kinds of believers that we should notice in this congregation. There are those who are committing adultery with this Jezebel. Some have fully bought into her false teaching, and they're called her children in verse 23. They believe like she believes, in other words. They're fully committed to this idea of going to the feast, these festivals, and you know, committing all sorts of acts that are offensive to God, and then also coming to church on the Lord's Day and worshiping God. Those are her and her children. And there are also those who don't, and they were, these are the ones who are praised back in verse 19 for good works. But they're tolerating this false teacher. Even those ones who have those good things said about them in verse 19, they're the ones who are tolerating this false teacher, and they need to stop tolerating her. They need to exercise church discipline in order for what is said in 26 or 28 to be true of them. There's no other burden put on them at the end of verse 24 we read. In other words, they shouldn't overreact and become like legalists, Joel Beakey says. There's sometimes a way in which you notice there's a problem and you react in such a way that you, you do too much to fix it. God's not wanting them to do this here, to do that sort of a mistake here. He's not wanting them to turn into Pharisees or legalists or lose the love that they have for Christ. He's wanting them to not tolerate this type of teaching that's going on and to continue to do the things that they were doing before, increasing in good works and patient endurance and faith and love. They simply, in other words, should remain focused on the gospel and acts of love that flow out of being changed by the gospel. Otherwise, they will find themselves in judgment along with Jezebel and her followers, her children. And so we see from this as well that God is personally involved with his churches. He's not just far off. We aren't just like doing our best job right now while God is off and distant and he's unengaged with what's going on in our lives. And one day, it's one day that we'll be with him. One day we'll be near. And it's true that when we go to heaven, there is a greater nearness to him. Our sin being fully stripped from us, our nature no longer fallen, having the effects of the fall on it. But Yahweh is with us now as well too. Remember, he was walking in the midst of these lampstands, we read at the end of verse 1, that are representative of the churches. And he's, he, he's near and he's working in us and accomplishing his will in and through us. And it's often through means. Remember what he said, Jesus gave her time to repent. He says, I gave her time to repent. Well, how did he do that? Well, it's what we would say is, is through a means or through a secondary cause through people or events that happen in the world. And so we read in verse 21, again, that God, meaning that Jesus, has given her time to repent. Jesus has given her this time. Excuse me, not the church in Thyatira all by herself, but the church through Jesus, we would assume, think, I, I, I rightly think. And she has been given time to repent, but she's not. Jesus doesn't instruct us to immediately anathemize and remove from our midst those who sin. And if that was the case, there would be no church. Right? Because we have to have time to notice that we're sinning and then time to repent. He uses means within the church and creation to accomplish these ends. So people are given time to repent, time to turn from error and turn to truth. Repentance being a change of mind that results in a change of action. And we see this pretty clearly in Second Chronicles 7. So let's turn back to there. Second Chronicles 7, if you go to Psalms, go left of Psalms. Second Chronicles chapter 7. And middle school group, especially pay attention here, please. Second Chronicles chapter 7, middle school students, <laughs> no faces. I warned them about this even. Uh, verse 13. 
the middle school group was always praying for rain. All right. I'm sorry. Yeah, no offense to the girls. It's true. The boys. Verse 13. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Those would all be examples of what I'm saying a means is or a secondary cause. Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, in other words, repent, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So sometimes, you know, God might work through nature in such a way to cause people to see their sin. So the no rain, you know, and, and think we're not in the old covenant right now. The church is not in the old covenant of God. But does California, who is a, a nation plagued by drought for years, have large statewide sins that God is not pleased with? Absolutely, of course, right? I'm not saying that he's withholding rain because of that, necessarily. I think that a rain dance yes. would be like a Jezebel type of thing. <laughs> it would be not a, good, not a good idea. But what would be really good is if we as Christians were more fervent about you know, not giving into idols and to be more serious about seeking the Lord and that the Lord would grant repentance to our nation and our land and people would seek him. Turn back to the New Testament, though. Because another example would be uh, through people. People are often a means. So look at James chapter 5. As I was saying, the means that God uses could be something in creation or could even be people who are part of his creation as well, too. It could be a rebuke or a comment from another person. So James 5 verse 19 my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Right? Part of the, the reason why we're supposed to gather faithfully and regularly is for that. So that when, when some of us are indulging in sin, another brother or sister could come and encourage us to not do that, to not go down that path. And that's probably something along the lines of what's happened here in Thyatira. At some point, though, action needs to be taken because God is not playing games with these matters. Time has been given to her to repent, we read, but she refuses and judgment will come to her and everyone who refuses to repent of their sin. To you, to me, to everyone. God promises to bring discipline that will lead a true believer to repentance. And he promises to bring judgment that at some point will lead to death upon those who engage in idolatry. And it could be even that a true believer dies because they're not repenting of sin. And we would have a lack of assurance on their behalf. But it could be a form of discipline. There should be a, a true, real fear and a reverence towards God about these matters. God's not playing when it comes to sin. It may come through tribulation in this life. If it doesn't, we know that it will certainly come after death for those who aren't truly united to Christ. Man is appointed to die but once, and then comes a judgment we read in Hebrews. Right here in verse 22, Jesus says he'll throw her onto a sickbed. There will be physical illness and suffering and great tribulation as well, we read in verse 22. And make no mistake, great tribulation, right? This notion that great tribulation is reserved only for the future for a time after you know Christians have been raptured, as the dispensational premillennialists teach, or even that the Great Tribulation is reserved only for a time right before Jesus' second coming, it's pretty foolish to hold those views when you read something like this here in Revelation 2, verse 22. 
Because the church of Thyatira, they were going to receive great tribulation if they didn't repent. This early congregation that existed nearly 2,000 years ago, if they don't repent, they will be thrown to great tribulation. And every person who lives now and has lived since then, there is a possibility of great tribulation for us all. Or worse, even death, right? Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Her children dead, those to me sound like those are unregenerate people. These are, these are people who aren't actual, truly Christians. They're her children. They fully bought into her life. Right? They're children of, you're either a child of God or a child of, of the devil. Who would children with Jezebel be more like? The devils, right? So to me, it sounds like those ones um, who talks about striking dead don't seem like they are just deceived believers. And God's acts of judgment testify to his glory among the church. They help us to have a holy fear, a holy reverence of God. But when we see a Christian depart from the faith or have a, have a great you know, destruction and you know, collapse under, the, under their sin and they don't repent, that should be something that causes us to have a, a right fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is clean, Psalm 19.7 says. It endures forever. And God's judgment upon a church are those individuals who fail to repent and take the mercy offered in Christ. They are a testimony to the sovereignty of God. Look at what verse 23 says. It says at the end of it, it says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each one of you according to your works. He says that right after he says that he's going to bring you know, great tribulation and even death upon some of them. God is not playing games with sin, friends. And neither should we. It's not that our holiness saves us, not at all. You know, we are justified. We are saved based upon the merits of Jesus and Jesus alone. And there is a relationship between our works and our beliefs, which our beliefs are even a kind of our works, and a profession of faith. Verse 25, only hold fast to what you have until I come. He's pointing them back to verse 19 here. This is what they have. He's not what he has against them. Their sanctification, their works, their love, their faith and service and patient endurance. These fruits that are grown on a good tree. In other words, these behaviors that come from a person that has been saved. They aren't what makes a person saved. We are wretched sinners who in no amount of doing good would erase the wrong that we have done or the sin that we inherited from Adam. It is Jesus's holy and sinless life, his holy and sinless life and offered there on the cross as a payment for the penalty of the sins that we have earned, which saves us. And because of that act that Jesus did, God regenerates us. He takes us who were born his enemies, who by nature are children of wrath, and he makes us alive in Christ because Christ took the death that we deserve on himself. And then Jesus arose from the grave and he ascended into heaven and he has promised to come again. He is exalted. He is reigning and we are reigning with him and he in us. And so that the thing summarized in verse 19, which of course includes all the fruit of the spirit, really, and turning from sin and repenting when we need to and we're made aware of it. It's all encompassed in that and it all flows out of being saved. Now, some people, though, are not truly saved. They're deceived. And we know that's true because they fail to repent when the time for them has been given to them and they don't do it. That's why even church discipline is a, is a slow, lengthy process because we want to give people time to repent. Uh, they aren't people who don't repent. They're not conquerors, as it were, because they aren't actually united to Christ because it is Christ Jesus who is the true and greater conqueror. As we read in verse 26, he's the one who has conquered sin and death 
He is the one who conquers our hard hearts by his spirit and who makes us conquerors in him. And so the reward for not for repenting and for not and for not tolerating this and for and for remembering the gospel is that you know we are going to be what he says in 26 uh, we'll be given authority over the nations who will have us to rule with a rod of iron and earthen pots and broken in pieces and there's strength in it even as he's received authority he says and he is reigning and we are reigning with him in his strength advancing his kingdom even now and in a future reign of complete rest in him too. It's, again, it's verse 26 to 27. And then this glorious promise in 28, which is maybe seems kind of weird. So then I will give him the morning star. What is that? Well, Christ himself is the morning star. We see that in Revelation twenty two sixteen, And it speaks of the consummation of Christ's covenant with us when he returns again. That's the last chapter in the book where Jesus is called the morning star then. Don't be confused with the passage in Isaiah, which I think in the King James Version it calls satan the morning star but esv says a day star it's a little bit different i'm not exactly sure how the hebrew of the wording works there but we'll save that when we get to uh, revelation 22 because the point right now is obviously that jesus is not going to give those who conquer satan <laughs> he's going to give to them himself that's the reward of the gospel brothers and sisters it's not that we'll have a glorious and problem-free life now and the life right now is filled with sacrifices it's hard to to see the idols that we have. It's it's hard to even when we see them to actually agree that they are idols and then forsake them. Life is now filled with tribulation and sorrow, and God is of course with us through them and conforming us to Christ through them. It's not easy to to live the Christian life. It's impossible apart from Christ and the new birth truly, and that's why He's warning the churches here. It's impossible apart from Christ. But Christ Jesus supplies mercy and grace to his beloved, to his church. And he does that through warnings like this. And so not only do we get Christ now, for those of us who are Christians, but we get him in, a, in all his fullness then when we go to heaven. That's our hope and our motivation, that we get Christ, that we never lose Christ. And he, he who loved us so much that he died for us, we get him and having him is exactly what we need. And as these addresses always do, it closes the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, there's, there's nothing greater than Jesus. There is nothing greater than the gospel. No one could preach a better gospel, for there is none better. And Jesus is the reward for all those who hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's pray and then take any questions if you have them. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. And we do know, Lord, that there is no need that we have that is greater than the need of our forgiveness, of forgiveness of sin. And we're so thankful that in Jesus you have made a way for forgiveness to happen. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to search out every idol in our heart, every sin that exists, and that we wouldn't tolerate such things to exist in our life or even tolerate the notion of people um, teaching us falsely against what your word would say. Help us to be holy for you are holy and remind us of the gospel. Let us have no confidence in ourselves to be right before you. Uh, help us to have our full confidence in what you have done for us, but nevertheless cause us for your glory's sake to increase in good works that we might bring glory to your name. For we know that you being glorified and knowing you all the more is 
what we were even created uh, to do. So help us, God, to, in faith, uh, trust you and to grow in love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Any questions or things I could try to make clear? No. Next week, um, you guys will have a, a Q&A night.